Welcome to another episode of A Woman's Worth. A woman's worth is being informed. A woman's worth is being educated. A woman's worth is being aware. A woman's worth is knowing how to prevent disease and have optimal health. Hello, listeners, and thanks for joining us to another episode of A Woman's Worth with Ms. Rashanda White and my co-host, Dr. Pamela Foster. Dr. Foster will join us on our upcoming episode um, next time. So for this episode, we will feature our EHE partner, St. Paul AME Church's She Looks Like Me program. In doing this um, program, this feature, you would hear from a woman that is HIV positive. She's gonna share her story. So as we uh, move into this, I'm sure you're gonna, it's gonna be, it's gonna, it is an informing video and I'm sure you're going to learn a lot and really be moved by um, the story. African-Americans account for 63.9% of diagnosed cases of HIV and are 6.9 times more likely to be infected with HIV in the state of Alabama. The mission of St. Paul AME Church in collaboration with the Alabama Department of Health through the Ending HIV Epidemic Initiative is to show how HIV prevention should be treated as a social justice issue because of its overarching effects in social and health determinants like poverty, racial discrimination, lack of access to health care, and higher rates of incarceration. Through the Ending HIV Epidemic Initiative, St. Paul AME Church strives to educate its target community by providing information on measures to prevent HIV exposure, identify risky behaviors, promote HIV testing, address stigma, and provide... This is the St. Paul AME Church's She Looks Like Me initiative, and our mission is to provide life-changing information in love. Okay, thank you, um, Pastor Lover. I am Crystal Nelson. I am the EHE program director, and I have here. Uh, well, um, as you know, we did have our event, uh, our open house, actually just an introduction to the community about the services that we will be offering for the community as it relates to HIV prevention. And so what we wanted to do was just kind of tell um, the community and all the agencies that were present about how we really want to reach the community. And so you may have seen that in the activities that we did where we're just showing the person, we're showing the things that individuals have to go through um, before they even have to think about taking care of their, their own health. And so you can kind of see how there are so many traumas and so many things that kind of weigh individuals down. And we wanted to show how St. Paul is going to take part in try to ripping away those things that weigh people down, those that create barriers and get to the heart of the person so that we can actually minister to them and give them the education that's needed and give them those things that are available to them as it relates to HIV prevention and HIV education and just their whole self-care and their health in general. And so that's what that um, this event was today, just an introduction of where we see ourselves in this world um, of HIV prevention. We are all one in the eyes of Christ. 
And so I am very much grateful for the opportunity for this ministry to go outside of the four walls of St. Paul. But I also encourage you to let others know that this service is available to them at St. Paul. They might feel some type of way going to another agency, but when they come into St. Paul and walk down that hall, don't nobody know why they're coming up to here? Let's just get real. <laughs> they don't know. And it's not their business to know. That's right. Right. <laughs> so we can service them and protect their anonymity as well as their story. I think it was a success in the way that um, that the people were present. They could feel feel the movement and feel the room and feel you know about our mission that we're really serious about it. And um, from that, we were able to gather people that were ready to join us on this mission. So that was um, that was amazing in itself because that's truly um, what it's going to take to really overcome. Um, this epidemic. So I, I do feel like it's a success that got us talking. Um, it had us seeing beyond just giving people information about HIV, but it really got to the core of what the issues are and what deters people for getting, from getting the help that is needed. Well, I am Lucretia Connell and what I do in the She Look Like Me organization is I am the HIV testing counselor. Um, I also give sexual education and I educate everybody on PrEP. I'm the person that comes out and does the community outreach and I like to, you know, give the um, orientations about, you know, practicing safe sex. Um, prep education and um, you know I'm out here counseling people testing people for HIV and trying to get rid of the stigma that they have um, with the disease okay so the first event that we did was um, the new student freshman orientation at Alabama State University and that was excellent we got to talk to all the newcomers all the new students that were coming in um, we did a, a whole a lot of testing we did so many tests that we ran out that day um, we were accompanied by MAO we made the students extremely comfortable to ask questions about um, sex uh, their their sexual um, orientation um, and how to better protect themselves and you know we also talked about a little bit of abstinence but we're dealing with freshmen where parents are not there to accompany them so we want to make sure that it stops with them um, in the community and that they were educated they got tested they were excited and they asked us to come back uh, Omega Sci-Fi was the second event also at Alabama State University and they um, we did the same thing um, we went a little bit more into depth um, they were extremely comfortable and everybody there got tested as well so our goal um, is lined up with the ending HIV epidemic initiative um, along with the Alabama Department of Public Health and CDC is to really end the HIV epidemic by the year 2030. Um, that's the goal. A lot of things that they have determined that create those barriers are the past, like the trauma, the lack of resources, um, the stigma. All of those things are um, some of the things that we intend to work on as a church, as a ministry. And so when we go out and do these community outreach projects or events, we're talking to them about that. We're getting their 
they're picking their brains on how they see HIV um, and, and being able to minister to that so that we may be able to change someone's heart. Um, we're talking to them in a more intimate setting so that we can get to know them and see what those barriers might be or see if they are, are struggling through, those, through certain things and then we're able to talk to that. My hopes for this initiative with uh, St. Paul AME Church is to um, eradicate stigma. Um, when we have people in our community that looks like us come in that are HIV positive and they have this diagnosis, we know that it comes with a heavy burden and that we are the church, so we're the church and we need to be able to take that burden on for them and assist them in any way necessary, whether that be testing or just loving them without the pressure of them feeling that, hey, you still know that I have this going on. We should be able to love on them. And I feel as though this initiative will at least cut it in half, um, educate people that don't know anything about PrEP, that don't know anything about HIV, um, that feel as though that they can't be effective, um, maybe because they're on a monogamous relationship or maybe because they're older, um, or maybe it's just because they have status. Um, HIV does not know any of those things. It just knows that it's there in somebody's body and it can attack at any time if you ex you're being exposed. Our mission is to uh, give people an understanding of how you get exposed. Our mission is to uh, get rid of this stigma that comes behind those that have already been exposed and diagnosed with this disease. Um, we would love for by 2023, 2030, um, even earlier than that, that you know we can cut it in half or we could just eradicate it all together. Um, just to educate people that don't know and educate those that do know and those that are positive that this is a place of um, rescue. Saying we're gonna do what it needs, do what we need to do and end the HIV epidemic, but we wanna really approach this in a holistic manner so that we're tearing down the stigma, we're tearing down those barriers that prevent people to be free. We don't want them to be bound with trauma and sadness. And so we hope that we will be able to minister to the community in intimate settings like this. If it's in the community, then guess what? It's, it's in, in the church. church. Come on, y'all say it again. <laughs> then what? It's, it's in, in the, the church. church. Okay, so if it's in the church, then the faith community cannot be radio silent. We cannot go mute while we know that God's people are suffering, come on y'all, in silence. Yes. So we need to encourage people. We need to encourage people, yes, to take control of their health, get tested, know their HIV status, but they need to be encouraged along the journey. So um, when we came up with She Looks Like Me, um, we really just wanted to um, approach pretty much a broad section of the population, women of color. Um, she looks like me is just just what it means. We had uh, mirrors in the in the fellowship hall when we had our event, just to remind you that when you look in the mirror, um, when we talk about HIV and being infected with HIV, we're not just talking about a certain demographic <laughs> because it affects such a wide range of 
um, individuals. And when we think about the older population, I think people honestly feel like it, it can't be them. It's We're not talking about them when we say she looks like me. So that's another barrier um, that we really have to break down that it really doesn't have a, a face or a name and that it could be you. And, and we just have to start talking about it a little bit more and um, just getting that information and education out there. All right, so we're here today um, interviewing someone that is willing to come forward and give their testimony. Grateful to have you here to tell your story because it is something that the community, our community needs to hear. Um, just for the sake of privacy, we will be doing it in this manner, um, if you don't mind. Um, I just wanna know where you were, just take us on your journey of where, where it all began, um, giving us the human side of things and kind of taking us on that journey of where, what it took to actually get to this place today. Okay, well, I was diagnosed in May 2000. Um, I actually went to the emergency room and was trying to get tested there, but they still wouldn't give me an answer. More or less like turned me away because I didn't have any insurance. So I left there and um, I went to, I believe I went to a regular doctor. And so they sent me to uh, CDC, like they uh, had to put you on a list if it's something um, serious. And so I took the test there and I found out that I was positive with HIV. And so then um, the doctor there at the control uh, center, he sent me to, um, it wasn't called MAO then, it was Copeland Care, I believe. It was named after a young white man, I believe, that um, had, had died from it. His family, you know, they donated a lot of money to that center. It was located at that time down from Greg Calhoun's store on Southern Boulevard. I went in there. And I didn't know what to think because I was already thinking like, well, HIV, you know, that's AIDS. So I knew like a death sentence. Take us, like I said, to the human side. Tell us about your relationship. And um, I had to be almost 40, 40 some years old when I was diagnosed. I, that's still pretty young to me. Um, and I didn't know what to do. I was in a relationship with, uh, and thinking about marrying this person. And we lived together for a while before he asked me to marry him. And I thought that was the right thing to do, you know, to say I would. And it was so much later before he started exhibit um, his behavior as far as other men, you know. Um, I couldn't have had a clue. I always wanted to meet his parents. His daddy was dead. Uh, he didn't have any relationship with his mother because whenever you brought that up, he would go ballistic. So I was like, what kind of man is this that don't have a relationship with his mom? So 
then I started listening to uh, some of his friends. I had a phone call one night where a guy had went through a sexual act with him and he told me about it. And then, uh, so I asked one of our mutual friends and he started telling me about, um, he was that this person was on the down low and did not know that, you know? And I said, no, I mean, I really didn't even know what down low meant because I knew he was in a relationship with a woman. But a particular night he came home around about 12 o'clock or so and bought the guy with him, you know? And I knew the guy because I didn't know why my fiance was taking him to the hospital every day. I think that person had already been affected by the disease. And so, you know, I can say in the course of two weeks, he hardly came home. And, um, and so finally, I just moved home. I moved back home. And then I started having problems with my health. What, what kind of problems? Um, it comes on to you first like a, like a bad cold, and then it's like a, like a virus. It's like a flu. And um, it expels all your body fluids. <laughs> I didn't even know I was losing weight. I always wore um, 11, 12. You know, that was a nice size for my height. And I would go and put my clothes on and somebody might say, you know, you're losing weight. So I say, no, I'm not losing weight. And I'll go in the mirror. I guess that's how some people have that eating disorder you talk about. You go look in the mirror and I just didn't see it. And so I had gotten down to like 115 pounds because I, I normally weigh 130, you know. And I said, well, something wrong, but I don't know what it is. But then I started, if I ate something, it would come up. And I'll eat it. I'll have diarrhea. I had to go to the restroom. And so it got to the point where I couldn't eat. And I, I went down to like, ooh, probably about 100 pounds and stuff. And I couldn't even get up off out well. My parents were sick too, so I had a friend of mine to bring a mattress in and put it down in our family room so I could be around them because my dad was sick, you know, and I always waited on both my parents. I didn't care how weak I was. I'd find strength somewhere. And so it had got to the point where I couldn't get up no more. And um, a friend of mine came by and she, and she said, uh, what's going on? You know, do you need to go to the doctor or something? But she helped me get my clothes on. And so we went, I can't even remember where we went, but um, I had the test done because I told him about my background with drugs and stuff. And then I didn't know what was going on with him, you know, sexually. And so that's when I found out that I was HIV positive in May 2002. And it was like a death sentence because I didn't know what to do. I didn't have no insurance. And I was trying to figure out, you know, where I was going to get some help from. Of course, they send you to the center of disease so they can put your name on a list or whatever. And then that guy suggested for me to go to Copeland Care. And from then on, that's when I started getting help, you know. I, I know I stayed in the house 
for like two or three years. No kind of sex activity, nothing. I didn't trust nobody. So then I started back to trying to do drugs and my body would like reject it and I would get sicker. So I quit again. So um, the doctor that I had though, um, she started me to go in like to counseling and the meetings and stuff. You had a counselor, you had everything. Um, food voucher, um, they hooked you up with insurance, which would be Medicaid. They gotta hook you up with, with that. And um, Social Security, they declared me as disabled because of my uh, diagnosis. And I started to get a check for that. So I stayed in the house some more with, with my parents, you know. So, um, you know, the place where you were with the diagnosis, you pretty much feeling alone, um, but you got your resources at Copeland Clinic. What kind of helped you, help bring you out of that place? Oh, it took a while. I started out writing a journal, <laughs> but then I said, oh, that's a bad idea because somebody find out because see, what you don't know is once you get that kind of death sentence, you don't know whether you're going to live. They usually give you like 20 years to live, you know? So, I mean, it took me a long time to come back around to even want to talk to a person, you know, and, uh, I went through a lot of still domestic violence, verbal abuse, physical abuse, whatever, until I just got tired. I got help in so many ways. Um, the person that was actually my doctor turned out to be the director of the place. And um, anything I asked for, they helped me with. But when you, someone said at the meeting today about the other diseases that come along with HIV, because it's sort of like COVID. The weakest part that's going on in your body, that's what it attaches itself to. You're subject to so many diseases, depends on uh, if it's, what I want to say, um, healable, uh, they can correct it. I just remember them trying to heal the acid reflux. I had to start taking uh, something for that. And they had to heal that first. Then you got stuff going on like herpes simplex. You got to take Valtrex for that. Uh, I had a blood transfusion. That's the first time I ever been diagnosed anemia because I never, I never was anemic. I mean, it's just so many. That's, I guess that's why I was taking so many pills, because they have to take care of each situation, you know, before they, um, you can start healing. Um, you know, I ended up on Descovy and um, Precista and Norveer. So we, talk, we spoke a lot about um, the past um, traumas that took place. Do you think that that relationship that you were involved in um, was linked to those past experiences? Um, a lot of my problems stemmed from probably emotional problems. Um, I was married before, 
and a lot of domestic problems there and rape and all that. I was probably 23 years old before I started having sex, although I got married when I was 19. I don't think I liked that person that I was married to. I think I wouldn't get out of the house because my dad was so strict. And so that was a way for me to leave was to get married. I got beat every day. It didn't have to be, I didn't have to do anything special to get that, you know, and it made you feel so totally unworthy. And I, I don't think I could have gone to my parents because I didn't want to put my dad in a situation where he would kill this person, you know, that I'm married to. So I kept that a secret for almost three years and just finally I got kidnapped, taken to Birmingham and I talked him some kind of way into taking me home so I can get my clothes. And once I got there, I just kept moving. You would say that I'm a product of middle-class society, that it was certain virtues and, and morals that I had to follow in order to be in that society. It was like a train that wasn't going to stop. And I married my second husband and had a child for him. I really did love him. But his abuse was different. He included other women. He was having outside relationships. So it had a lot to do with me being exposed to domestic violence, drugs, rape. Um, emotional problems that I thought I could handle on my own, but I couldn't. So at this point um, in the progression of the disease, you're considered what we call undetectable. Yes. Is that correct? Yes, for a long time now. It's uh, been about 10, 15 years. So it's been a long time. And so at that point, you felt like it was a death sentence. Um, but at this point, years later, and where you are now, like, how do you feel? I feel like God gave me another chance and for another life. But it will never be normal. Although um, I'm married, my, you know, my husband, he, he knew about it long before that. I told him right away well, before we got involved, involved and stuff. He said, well, I'm glad you told me. Hearing her life story, um, it was a lot of stuff that registered. Um, the drug abuse, um, the lack of sex education as a child, that the things that contribute, um, not being able to talk to a, a partner, being in a domestic violence relationship, um, unresolved trauma, things that pretty much put a lot of people in the positions um, to high risk to get those types of diagnosis. Um, it can still happen to anyone. She was in a monogamous relationship, though she thought she was in a monogamous relationship, and it happened to her. And um, I know that she's a healthy woman. She's a healthy person outside of her status. I understand that she is U equals U, which is um, undetectable, untransferable. So, I mean, I'm happy for her. I know that she started at a place where she was um, focused though as a death sentence.
and then to the place that she is today where she's healthy and she's not able to transmit it to her partner. I'm happy that she's married. So I'm happy about her success story. The best outcome for anybody that is HIV positive is to seek medical attention and stay on your meds and find a regimen that works for you and to, uh, to try to stay healthy. Um, like she said, she told her husband, because she's married, um, she's living her, her life now. So the best thing she did, was, like she said, she told her partner, everybody's not like that. Everybody does not disclose um, the HIV status. Um, everybody can't be trusted to disclose the HIV status. I'm happy not of her diagnosis, but that she's living her life despite her HIV status. As we look at the African-American population, it's really across the board and they're, they're increasing the rates even as young as age 15 and up. So we really have to uh, make sure that we're hitting um, all populations. And so we titled it, She Looks Like Me, because it could be any one of us. And just because you're in a professional setting, as we heard in, our, in that testimony, um, just because you have some education or um, you have status or money, or even um, you don't have that, it could really be any one of us um, dealing with that today. But the whole, whole thing about um, the prevention part and knowing your status um, is that you'll be linked to people that can help you to stay healthy. And for those um, clients or people that are HIV, that have, have contracted HIV, um, obtaining that undetectable status, I mean, that's amazing because that says that I cannot spread HIV to anyone else because I am undetectable at this time. So that is just major. And if everyone knows their status, if everyone is doing everything and doing their part, then there's the hope in it. And that what that's what makes 2030 um, achievable and full of hope. So um, St. Paul, just so grateful um, that they are stepping up to the plate and actually doing you know what the word says, offering their love, opening up their doors to everybody because again it, it um, affects everybody and I just think that you know St. Paul being the home church of Rosa Parks um, just the history behind that and the legacy behind that I think this is um, our way of you know stepping in talking about the social injustice because this this epidemic is a social injustice as well and so um, just very grateful that the church is saying, we wanna do our part and we are here for the community. Listeners, wow. What a very informative, educational and moving program. She looks like me. I would like to thank, thank St. Paul AME, one of our HEHE partners, for allowing us to share this with you all, our listeners. It definitely speaks to the work we're doing here is, is in educating, informing, and raising awareness around HIV and particularly African-American women. And I, I hope you all share this, my perspective as it, as it relates to the story of the HIV positive woman. 
She was courageous to share her story. And she's went through struggles and now she's on her meds. She's doing well. So we would like to applaud her. And again, applaud St. St. Paul and me church in the work that they're doing as it relates to African-American women in Montgomery and HIV. So listeners, I would like to say thank you so much again for coming to another episode of A Woman's Worth. And um, remember, please visit the Woman's Worth Community Health and Wellness Radio Show Facebook page to complete a survey on this show. We really like to hear from you all. So please visit um, the Facebook page um, to complete the survey of, the, of this particular show. Also, you may visit Afram South's website, aframsouth.net, www.aframsouth.net to listen to this show and previous show via the podcast um, and Spotify. And listeners, remember, a woman's worth is being informed. A woman's worth is being educated. A woman's worth is being aware. A woman's worth is knowing how to prevent disease and have optimal health. Again, I hope you were informed and I hope you were educated and I hope you were moved by St. Paul AME Churches. She looks like me. So again, thanks for joining us and take care. Wherever I choose to go.